Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, economics is based on information. In theory, equal information to everyone. But that's not how it works. But if you had more information, would we have less inequality? And would the system work better? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, it is one of the flaws of pure economics, isn't it? That to have perfect competition, you need perfect information. That when you buy something, you should know the price of all competing products. When you buy shares in a company, you should know about the pros and cons of that investment as much as someone who works in that company knows. Everyone should have that information, and they should all have it at the same time, which is, of course, a crazy notion, but that is the basis of pure economics. So before we get your views on how important it is, Steve, that we perhaps should continually strive to get closer to perfect information, let's hear the views of Joe Stiglitz, first of all. He's a Nobel Prize winner, a professor at Columbia University, who questions the ideas of rational decisions and utility, both things, I'm sure, that we'll get into in this conversation. But here he is, first of all. Well- for 200 years of modern economics, it was always assumed that information was perfect. Right. And not that people really believed it was perfect, but they didn't know how to incorporate imperfect information into the theories. And the hope was that the world with imperfect information would be very much like a world with perfect information. Right. You know, in our everyday life, we're always struggling with the imperfections of information, and we know that they're very important. Uh, They consume us, you know, when when you hire somebody, you worry about how good they're going to be. what, What we do conveys information from one side of the market to the other. Right. And that because I know that and you know that, it affects our behavior. Right. So, for instance, uh, you may want to go to uh, school longer. Uh, not just because you want to get more education, as valuable as that may be, but also you want to signal to your employer right. that you are more able and that you can get through those hurdles that right. are required, uh, and so that you're conveying information. Uh, when you, the buyer of a used car knows that if he offers too little of a price, too low of a price, only guys who have cars that have lots of problems are going to be willing to sell it. Ah. So he starts to infer, if I offer too low of a price, I'm going to get a lousy car. So he acts on imperfect information. Exactly. And, he, he, and, and so one of the important applications of this is that, for instance, you may want to pay a worker more than the minimum amount that you need to get a worker, because if you pay a worker too little, you get a lower quality worker, he won't work as hard. Yeah. In the older theory, with perfect information, you never have to worry about incentives, you never have to worry about who you're hiring, because you know everything. Right, so he's basically saying, 
forget this idea that we all make rational decisions and i guess also you know the a, a bit of a utility theory becomes redundant as well doesn't it i mean it's um you know th- there is no such thing as perfect information well <laughs> first of all i've got to say that uh, joe is one of the best of the mainstream and his uh, addition of asymmetric information is quite clever and both and, and insightful. So I'm not going to be uh, uh, knocking his work as I might Alton Friedman's work or uh, even Paul Krugman's work. So Joe is one of the people that I regard as having uh, made a major contribution within the constraints of the mainstream theory. Mm. Uh, but everybody's talking about perfect information. What economists mean by perfect information is not you know exactly where your coffee cup is, or in my particular case right now, you know where your remote control for the TV is which we don't. Somehow we lost it two nights ago. We can't find the bloody thing in this small flat in Amsterdam. Back of the sofa. It's always in the back of the sofa. I tried. I found a 50-euro note. There was at least <laughs> some that have... <laughs> I couldn't find the damn controller. Now, what they mean is perfect information about the future. Mm. We know what's going to happen in the future because we have perfect information. And this is even more extreme than what Keynes railed against back in the 1930s. He, one, of, one of my favourite phrases from Keynes, and I'll see if I can quote it, without looking at it, was that um, I accuse the classical economic theory as being one of those pretty polite techniques appropriate for a well-panelled boardroom, which tries to deal with the present by abstracting from the fact that we know very little about the future, quote unquote. If Keynes was alive today, he would be out there throwing Molotov cocktails at the American Economic Association and all other institutions of so-called economics because they now assume rather than ignoring the fact that we don't know the future and talking about perfect information, knowing what prices are being offered by different suppliers and being able to work out who's offering the lowest possible price and buying from that supplier, they now assume you can accurately predict the future. That's what they mean by perfect information. Right, from the present. From the present to the the infinite future. mm. To the infinite future, okay? That, That is what they mean by perfect information. Now, in that context, what Joe's stuff is saying is really related to, in some sense, to the old idea of inf- perfect information, which was, we know everything now. I know that I've got a car which is a bad functioning car. You also know I've got a bad functioning car, so the price will be low. In fact, what happens is that I know I've got a bad functioning car, you don't. Uh, there's an asymmetry there, and I exploit the asymmetry. And then you get what's called a market for lemons, which drives down the quality and price of, of, uh, of second-hand cars. Uh, that's the sort of information Joe was talking about. But, he, there. but 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 he is saying that um, you know if we had more perfect information, then the the, the economy might um, might perform perform better, isn't he? I mean, he, he's but he acknowledging the fact that it doesn't because we don't have that, that perfect information. So we so we behave no. in ways which are not totally rational. And he gave that example. You might go to university. Not because you want to get a better education, but because you think it's going to help you get a a, a better job and you're going to be able to to pay more, uh, get paid more. But it's it, you know that which might be a very different reason, and the reason is because people are going to trust you more because you've been to university rather than uh, you actually have a, a an ability to do the job any better. Yeah, and that's quite valid. I'm mean, not, not going to knock that as a, as an argument at all. It's, it's it's it makes a lot of sense. But it's an embellishment of the old-fashioned idea of perfect information being knowledge about the present Mm. to high accuracy, saying, okay, well, in fact, there's not high accuracy. Different groups have got different amounts of information, and the information asymmetry is the source of the market not being in a perfect equilibrium. That's that's the sort of stuff Joe's talking about. What it's been borrowed for as well is to say... uh, 
what it ignores fundamentally, pardon me, is that we have we don't even have anything like decent information about the present. We have no information about the future. And why have I used the phrase information about the future? <laughs> I got involved in a bit of heated correspondence with the then editor of the American Economic Association, AER, American Economic Review Macro Journal, when I submitted a paper of mine, which by the way I now know has a, has a stock flow inconsistency in it, so I'm not gonna defend the paper all that much. I've since improved the model behind it, of course. I submitted a paper modeling Minsky with price dynamics as well. And he wrote back to me saying he was going to reject my paper unrefereed uh, because he really liked the verbal explanation of Minsky's hypothesis, but he wanted to see an argument about how markets cleared and that sort of thing. And I just basically went for the jugular, as you know I can do. And in the middle of the fight, he came out with a phrase, and I, and I quote, what if they get more information about the future? How would that change things? Now, there's somebody talking about information about the future mm. as if it actually exists. <laughs> and this is, this, is not, this is what hasn't been directed by Joe's comments because there is this, because of the whole idea of perfect this and perfect that, which is just a, a bounds in neoclassical theory, all these pejorative terms in what they call a value-free science, because of this idea of perfect information, it was so much a background of their thinking about this idea of perfect competition and maximum welfare, yada, yada, yada. It was so easy for them to fall into extrapolating that into the future and saying, well, if we all have the same model of the economy and that model of the economy accurately describes the economy, then we all use that model to be able to say exactly what's going to happen if something happens in the economy today and predict its future consequences. Therefore, we know the future. Now, that is called rational expectations. Mm. And that is the greatest load of quad swallow that's ever been forced upon the Australian human population with the possible exception... No, I'm sorry. I think it's probably first place. Well, okay, but what... Maybe religion. Maybe religion. But <laughs> well, we, do, we really don't want to go there. Uh, but, we don't want to go there, no. But, I mean, but what if, uh, if, if you make changes today in the availability of information, and that does, uh, you know, will, will drive change in the, in the future. You might not know how it's going to drive change in the future. But say, for example, we know, uh, and this is part of the reason I wanted to talk about this, in the news a lot lately, there's been a lot of discussion about pay, gender pay gaps. And similarly, you know, how much uh, we, uh, the BBC is paying uh, presenters. Like, for example, John Humphreys, who does a radio show, gets paid £600,000 a year. I do a radio show in the commercial sector. I don't get paid £600,000 a year. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I know how much he's earning now because I know how angry to be about it because I don't think he's really necessarily that much better than I am. Uh, so, but having that information uh, obviously influences, for example, um, uh, the, the way that well, should influence the way BBC operates and the way the broadcast industry operates. And if you had the same information available in all industries, it might change behaviour as well. And similarly, if we knew how much government spends on various projects and, you know, we didn't have stuff which is commercial in confidence, why shouldn't I know, for example, how much a supplier uh, is getting paid by the government to do a particular job. I mean, that supplier might be a little bit upset, um, but if they provide that, uh, but if they if they don't want that information to be available because they think it's going to um, uh, impede their ability to charge more to other suppliers, don't supply to the government. You see my point? It's sort of like if we had um, open government. Uh, and open availability of information on, on, on salaries, we would have more perfect information. I'm just wondering how far 
you can spread that and whether that does good for the economy or bad for the economy. What does it do for wages, for example? What does it do for the cost of supply and, and, and all that sort of thing? How good an actor do you think Bruce Willis is? I think, well, he's certainly not worth what he's getting paid. <laughs> exactly. And you know, uh, the, the, the whole reason that Hollywood salaries are out, outrageous as they are is that Bruce Willis, I've forgotten which particular movie it was, one of his movies, he demanded die some... Die Hard. He demanded like a... He went from sort of, you know, 2 million to 20 million. And because the franchise yeah. was so successful, the studios paid it. And then apparently every negotiation in Hollywood began... After that, well, Bruce is being paid that much. I want to get paid X much, which is just like you and the, you know, Humphrey's radio presenter. If you're getting 600,000 yeah. quid, I want, you know. Um, Everyone so else wants the same amount. To- yeah, so actually in the, in the Bruce Willis example, though, I can, I can understand that because if, he, if they believe he's going to make a movie and, he, and people are going to go and watch it because he's in it, uh, then maybe he is worth uh, 20 million or, or, or whatever, he's, whatever he's demanding. But I think in lots of situations, and let's take that John Humphreys example, I reckon there's somebody who would do that job for 100,000 a year and do it just as well, and they wouldn't lose any audience as a, as a result of it. So um, it makes you wonder, why aren't they doing that? So, I mean, there's, there's two interesting examples, because one of them's got dollars attached to it in the Hollywood movie. The other one is, uh, is a public sector salary. And, uh, you know, and there's a lot of very high public sector salaries where if it wasn't being done by the person who's demanding that, those big, big bickies, somebody would do it for a lot less and do the job almost as well. But what it tends up happening, and this is where I'd recommend Sandra Navidi's book, uh, Super Hubs, uh, it's a network effect. You, you become part of the network. You be, become perceived as the face of the BBC, which, of course, is, pardon me, but I've got so sick of it watching it for the last four years compared to the ABC back in Australia, which I have much more time for. It's the face of the Tory party, and mm. you, you, um, you get seen as part of that network, and they want to pay you that much because once you pay that much, you're going to be saying what the mainstream wants you, wants you to be saying. It's, uh, it's a network effect of feedback that keeps you in that loop, even if you aren't particularly good. And... The reality is that most of these situations, if anybody else had been acting in that movie, not anybody else, but a wide range of other actors could have pulled it off just as well. If Pierce Brosnan had been in the role, for example. Um, yeah. there's, there's, uh, there's Daniel Day-Lewis is another cattle of fish completely. Uh, but it's just he, Bruce Willis was successful because he was in that particular movie. This is, again, where Harrison Ford's success came from, being in Star Wars. I think it's in Sweden. I can uh, call up uh, the tax office or whoever, some government department, and find out how much somebody else is getting paid. Uh, they will know somebody has asked. They'll know who's asked. But if I want to find out how much my co-workers are getting paid... Um, I can find out oh, what's wrong with that. Wouldn't that uh, would that push salaries up or drive salaries down or just reach some sort of reasonable stage where people are getting paid what they're worth? Never the latter. I think the last point is it's almost likely to drive wages up. That's been the experience, particularly when you're talking about people in prominent positions. So again, one of the major arguments in favour of the incredibly outrageous levels of pay that chief executive officers get these days, managers of companies. The argument was if we pay them more. And also we pay them in terms of stock options as well. Uh, they're going to be more aligned with the interests of the corporation and that'll be the benefit of the corporation. Now, what it actually meant was it was in their interest to pump up the share price and any way to pump up the share price they would do. So, for example, if you did less maintenance on your facilities and therefore had a lower cost level than you should really have until they had a higher profit rate, which would give you an announcement that would cause your share price to rise, which would then come back and mean the 
the, the, the shares that you which you were given vested in you and you had made an enormous profit out of it, um, you'd do it. And that is where, amongst other wonderful uh, 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 impacts of capitalism, where the great Pong in Adelaide came from because of privatised French company owning the sewerage works over there made more money by not doing maintaining the sewerage ponds properly until such time as the bacteria, uh, aerobic bacteria that were processing it died out, leaving only anaerobic bacteria, which of course gives us hydrogen sulphide smells. And Adelaide spent some years under what they called the big pong. Uh, and of course, these huge rates of pay really come at the expense of shareholders rather than at their benefit. And given this is whole inflation world, so I don't think uh, getting rid of that information asymmetry will give us a, a, a perfect world where everything falls back to equilibrium again. It'll give those who've got the bargaining power the capacity to pull the Bruce Wilkes cart and say, well, if, you, if, if they're paying that much at Zaxo, I want 10% more for here because you want me to get them, you want me to get you past Zaxo, you've got to pay me more money. And it became a way right. that extremely well-connected people could use to bargain and get more of the share of the surplus than they'd get otherwise. So rather than that improvement information actually leading to a, you know, Humphreys falling back from 600,000, let's say 200,000 pounds a year. Uh, it meant that um, people would use that information, were that a public, a, a private broadcaster, use the information to go and bargain for more money for themselves. So you get a star effect that actually increases the level of inequality. Right. Well, does it increase that? But, but wouldn't at the same time everybody else be saying, well, in that private organisation, look, Humphreys is on 200000 a year. Uh, I'm his co-presenter. I want to be on 200000 a year as well. Uh, the producer might say, well, I want to get paid a bit more too. And, uh, and, and, and as you say, everyone's salary goes up. But if everyone's salary goes up... No, the same- because you're not part of the network. The Humphreys is the phrase, the phrase person, the producer in the background. Who gives a shit about him? We don't invite him to our parties. Uh, we don't know what, where he lives. We don't want to know where he lives. Uh, but Humphreys, yeah. he's the guy who's putting the word out there and let's invite him to this function and that function and so on. He becomes part of the network. So right. okay. this information becomes the way they, they get into the network, which makes them a huge amount so, of money. So all you're talking about is a, an, an excuse for why you want to protect that network if you're part of that network. But what I'm saying is, uh, well, breaking it down, isn't it good to, to if, if we had this uh, asymmetry of information, the network would struggle to exist, wouldn't it? Because, mm, you, not you know, because you, you wouldn't be able to pay him 600,000. You could only pay him 200,000 and everybody else would be asking for, uh, for more. And the, the variation in salaries would be less grand. Uh, and, uh, and the network wouldn't be able to buy people as much as they currently are, if that's your argument. No, I still think it wouldn't have anything like the beneficial impact that you're hypothesising here and that that Joe obviously has in his back of his mind as well because I would rather see a higher level of income for the average worker. I'd rather see a basic uh, basic level of income being determined than trying to cut down the tall poppies who get these network-associated salaries because the real inequality is... First of all, the disparity of wealth. And then these people, we're talking about prominent people. You, you can't be arguing, this is not an argument between bakers or between university academics or um, you know, car, um, courier drivers. But it, could apply and so on. It, it should apply at every level, though. I mean, if you're an office worker and you believe there's somebody in the office uh, and you're, you know, you're doing an administrative task and you believe somebody else in the office is getting paid mm. more for a very similar job, shouldn't you know that? And shouldn't you be on the same wage? I, I see this as leading to a very destructive cycle, unfortunately, because what it leads to is people behaving in a, in a you know, 
uh, like a couple of monkeys fighting over one getting a cucumber versus the other getting the uh, this the um, um, the the cherry. This this is this is this is a valid point, but it, it doesn't seem that we actually address it successfully. Um, if like if you if the people will often complain that I'm doing better work than that person's getting, and we're just getting the same pay. Uh, um, what you actually find is when you when you start paying people differential amounts based on their perceived ability, you start breaking down the community that exists in that workplace. And there is that. Have you ever seen that wonderful video clip of uh, I think a couple of Capuchin monkeys, um, both inside? This is exactly your example. Both inside transparent uh, perspex cages, being paid uh, to do some operation for the experimenter and one gets paid and they, they show it up and they show exactly what they're getting and one gets a, a grape and then the other does exactly the same job and he gets a cucumber and when he gets a cucumber look at the cucumber looks at the other monkey looks at the experimenter and throws the cucumber back at the experimenter now <laughs> beautiful beautiful illustration but what that is showing is the monkeys believe they should get the same return for doing the same thing whether they do it well or badly and it's, it's a very deeply ingrained principle, not just in humanity, but in a wide range of species of some degree of equal treatment. So what you're talking about is let's, you know, use the information that we know who is being treated and who is not. The very fact that you can be treated unequally uh, while doing the same work is the source of this attitude. And it, it can lead to a form of social breakdown. Right, and your point is that some people might actually be doing doing the job better. It might be the same job, but somebody is doing the job better than somebody else, which would be Bruce Willis's argument and John Humphrey's argument that uh, I am doing the job six times better than somebody who's getting paid 100000 and Bruce Willis is getting paid many millions of times better than somebody who could do it uh, for, for a lot less. So, yeah, so it's the quality quality of the work. And I guess that then relates to... Uh, you know, suppliers to uh, local councils, for example. If someone is tarmacking the road for, I don't know, uh, Cambridgeshire Council, should Greater Manchester Council uh, know how much they're getting paid so that they can negotiate better deals with people who are tarmacking the roads in their area? Yeah, well, this is coming down to the issue of fraud because quite frequently you'll see these developments occur uh, where uh, somebody's on the inside, you, you know, they, they get a tender... Uh, which nobody else gets access to, or they charge, they actually charge a higher price, they still get the position because the information is not being shared. What's actually being shared is some of the money from that going back into the pockets of somebody behaving corruptly inside the council or, for that matter, the private company and so on. So it's really about exposure of fraud. And there, of course, yes, I want to see that information published mm. because, again, it seems to be it's very well, different. No, it's when it not comes just fraud, though, is it? It's also am I am I getting the best deal? You know, is the government yeah, getting? Yeah. Is, is, is the well, government that, that, getting the, almost by definition with fraud? You don't get the best deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, you could also you could, it could also not be fraudulent. You could just have uh, purchasing managers who are just not very good at their job and just don't know how much stuff could is have, worth. Or, or you could have qualitatively different performance going down. I mean, for example, one of the reasons that we had the Glenfield disaster was that uh, the people quoting to have uh, flammable uh, materials and, uh, is, is the outside insulation of a building could underquote the others and just go for the cheapest price and bang, we lose hundreds of people's lives. So yeah. it, it, it comes down to quality issues as well. But you do want to have that transparency in government to stop that type of corrupt uh, dealing going on because there certainly is and was tons of it. And... Uh, you know, it, it, we need to stamp it out, and that information does seem to work. It, it seems to be that in areas where you're talking about tendering, 
and things of that nature where it's a where it's a corporation being paid the money then publishing the amount of money being paid and the terms in which they offered to fulfill the contract, that does seem to give you a stabilizing impact. But when you do it for people and say, here's the amount of money the CEO of AXA is getting um, versus the amount of money the CEO for Lloyd's is getting, then what you get is in the network, which they are part of, the one who's getting the low amount can then go and say, well, if you're paying that guy that much, I want 10% more. And what you get is a huge inflation in, in, in CEO wages, in radio presenter wages, in anything which gives you a star quality, you get a dramatic increase in inequality. You don't get a stabilizing factor coming out of it. Right. Don't think you have star quality in radio presenters. I think you're thinking back to the 1970s. Uh, <laughs> not anymore. Uh, so on the on the idea of government suppliers, though, I mean, I gave the example of someone who's tarmacking a road. Um, probably mm. the governments or, or the public sector are the, the only people who want people to tarmac roads. But if you were to then say, well, okay, if we're doing it for that, uh, we also want to do it for the supply of telecommunications. Then you start to say, well, okay, how much is the government paying for telecommunications services? Then large companies would say, well, okay, now that information is available, um, we know how much we uh, we can expect from um, the same supplier supplying telecommunications services to us. Is that a good thing or yeah. a bad thing? That, that, that's that's what I have more time for the idea of providing that information because uh, that it does seem that when you're talking about tendering. Uh, as a corporation looking at the amount of money they've got to pay to get a particular service or to get a particular facility constructed. In that situation, knowing what rivals offer um, does seem to work as a way of getting lower markups, um, not necessarily better quality. This is one of the dangers of this total Mm. focus upon costs. We ignore quality. And that you, you ignore quality at your peril, as Australia is finding with its broadband speeds, which basically have one snail walking along a wire towards another snail to exchange to connect their um, an- antennas together to pass bits of data up and down people's homes. It's disastrously bad. So this, the whole this focus is, on cost got us there. This is sort of a part of open government in a way, isn't it? Which is something that's uh, talked about a, a great deal. Actually, been talked about for decades. Uh, and uh, just for a bit of light relief, uh, here's a bit of Yes Minister on open government. What's wrong with open government? I mean, why shouldn't the public know more about what's going on? Are you serious? <laughs> well, uh, yes, sir. I mean, it is the Minister's policy, after all. Mate, boy, it's a contradiction in terms. You can be open or you can have government. But, <laughs> but surely the citizens of a democracy have a right to know. No. They have a right to be ignorant. <laughs> Knowledge only means complicity and guilt. Ignorance has a certain dignity. Yeah, well, there we are. We, we're, we're, yeah. we're all blessed with ignorance, aren't we, as far as the government's concerned. But so equality of information is not a good thing in that case, what we're saying when, yeah, when we're dealing with government. We're living through it right now. We're living it right through with Syria right now. I mean, somebody who um, was supposed to be conscripted to fight in Vietnam because of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which did not happen, uh, the second one, and was, a, was a, a, a case of Americans being shot at because, gee whiz, they were in foreign, they were in another country's uh, territorial waters supporting people who were sabotaging facilities in north, northern Vietnam. Um, I'm very sceptical of government information about things like Syria. And, and yes, you do want to have that, but how do you achieve it? I mean, partly Sir Humphrey's point there, um, you know, the government, there is an enormous amount of skullduggery going on inside governments and they would, they, they, what would happen with perfect information there? 
<laughs> well, their answer, by, their answer, by the way, is a white, pa- a white paper on open government because they are. What, 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 what we need is rival. We need rival information system. That's where the journalism should be doing. Being yeah, well, skeptical well. of what government yeah, has yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, okay, what about this then? Just finally, because we are looking at information in lots of different ways. If you had perfect information mm. on the stock exchange, and again, of course, you're talking about the future rather than the present. But if you had perfect information about. Um, um, the, the current situation, if you knew, for example, uh, the real truth about what was happening behind companies that you are, because that, that is uh, asymmetric information. The company obviously knows what's going on inside it. Uh, investors don't. But if the investors knew everything about the company uh, and every investor, and here's, an, uh, I guess, another point as well, you know, uh, some people have more information than others because they can for example, afford to buy it or they're in a network that has access to that information. If everybody had the same access to the same information about companies on the stock exchange, the stock exchange wouldn't work, would it? Because it's entirely based on a gamble, based on asymmetric information. Well, not, it's not asymmetric information. It's asymmetric expectations that it's based upon. And this is yeah. where Warren Buffett, back to our previous show, but those expectations so are based. Money. Those expectations are based on the information available, though. No, they're based on extrap- They're based on uncertainty about the future and people extrapolating uh, their what's happening now into the indefinite future. But you're extrapolating from information about what's happening now, but not everybody has access to the information about what's happening now. So, so if you well, even when they do have information, I mean, for example, back in the dot com bubble, there were companies with massive valuations and negative cash flows, massively negative cash flows. Mm. I think pets dot com was probably the record in that situation. But you had people valuing company not on the basis of what was happening right now, because everybody knew it was going through a massive cash burn. And in fact, you were regarded as not being a good internet company if you were, if you were making money. You had to be losing money at this stage if you gain market share. So people are saying, yes, we know it's got negative cash flows. Yes, it's got enormous debt. But look what's going to happen in the future. Everybody's going to buy their pets through pet.com or their pet through to pet.com. Of course, it completely disappeared. And, and, and what, what's going on there is people are sharing euphoric expectations about a particular asset class. This is Holminsky's idea about expectations and information. And it isn't the fact that we have differing information, not the information asymmetry. It's we share deluded expectations about the future mm. because the future is uncertain and the end is always near, to quote um, the doors. And in that world, people will fall back on the herd mentality. Yeah to form their expectations about the future and no degree of information about the present is going to stop that hurting occurring. Right, yeah. So, which is a, uh, which is a different issue, isn't it? So maybe the herd, herd mentality is, is uh, more influential than, than information is. Far more. And this is, this is the, the point that I, I... You know, information to me is an interesting little wriggle on what doesn't exist in mainstream economics, which is an acknowledgement of uncertainty about the future and expectation formation under uncertainty. And that is by far the major factor in how we behave and how capitalism functions and malfunctions. So what's our conclusion here? That asymmetric information exists, but we shouldn't worry about it? Not particularly, but the points we should worry about it, certainly the idea of government tender information being available and having more than one information source because you have every reason to be sceptical of what the government's saying, those things matter. Uh, but that's not going to that, that they are not the major problems of the planet. It's these euphoric expectations we get locked into, and contr- and not controlling that, but acknowledging they exist in the very first instance is more important than getting 
uh, reducing the degree of information asymmetry. Right. And I should calm down about John Humphreys getting paid £600,000 per year. Good luck to him. No, rail about it, rail about it. You should take his place, mate. Get a decent voice on the BBC for a change. All right. Well, I want 700 if they're going to take me because I'm so much better than he is. That's it, that's it. Uh, yep, you go, don't, don't go undercut. Do you go off into your old... I'll, I'll give you a better deal if you pay me a million. That's right. Yeah, actually, that's right. I'm actually worth 1.2 million because I'm twice as good as John is. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, look, if you can get me for 800, then you're getting a bargain. Yeah, that's the, that's the no, tactic I'll no. use. All right, good to talk to Steve. Um, maybe the last time I talk to you because obviously I'll be presenting the uh, Today program on Radio 4 from next week. Uh, but uh, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> and that's it for this time. The Debunking Economics podcast will be back again with more stuff just like this. Next time, I'm Phil Dobby. He's Professor Steve Keen. We'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.